Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. This is Owen Jones here. Today, James O'Brien. Now, James O'Brien is a bit of a star in the world of radio and beyond. Uh, He's a best-selling author, of course, as well. He's the LBC presenter who's well-known for having ding-dongs with callers for his very strongly held views, not least, of course, on Brexit. He was a passionate and remains a passionate Remainer. So I want to talk to him. We come from different perspectives. I'm a socialist. uh, He's a liberal. Uh, But it's important to have these sorts of discussions on this podcast. So we're going to talk about a lot today. Is he impressed by Keir Starmer? Does he think that maybe we could have settled on a soft Brexit instead? Obviously, we'll have to talk a bit about Jeremy Corbyn without relitigating that too much, but we need to have that conversation out, uh, as well as what's going on in the country and the media landscape. We have a little chat about Andrew Neil for a start. Now, a bit of housekeeping. We're all about offering in this podcast an alternative to the right-wing media. Speak truth for power. Have a bit of fun as well. Uh, if you want to support us, and we've got loads and loads and loads of interviews, documentaries, discussions, you name it, please do support us however you can so we can expand, either via the support function uh, in the podcast description or come to patreon.com forward slash owenjones84, become a regular supporter and you can help us decide who we speak to, what we speak about and so on. Whatever you do, please give us five stars on iTunes. It just helps get the word out so more people listen to the podcast. Subscribe, of course, and spread the word. So after all of that, do settle back or whatever you're doing and give this a listen. I think it's really interesting. I'm very, very honoured uh, to be interviewing a man who needs, he doesn't really need an introduction, but I'll just say he's a best-selling author. He's the a, a flagship presenter at LBC. Less said about some of the other LBC presenters. <laughs> present, the better. <laughs> James Strayton, right, pandemic. I'm just, I mean, we're bottom of the pile of public sympathy. Um, as I, I mean, so I'm not going in that direction. But firstly, how how have you coped? But also, what what have you learned? What have you learned from the pandemic? Um. Oh, that's a good question. I, I've coped well. I, I think I, I, the, the, it suited the family. We're, we're you know we're comfortably off and and we, we can amuse ourselves. It was easier in the summer when you could get out and about. But the, the idea of being on your own, living on your own, or or having homeschooling without much support from the school is is terrifying actually so I'm under no illusions about being very much at the lucky end of the lockdown what what have I learned I think I I mean until the weekend that's just passed where uh, finally the European Commission did something that really did deserve to be described in 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 fairly undiluted negative terms I had I had really been even I'd been surprised by how much of a free pass Boris Johnson continues to get. I, I, I mean, my refusal to, 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 to get over it with regard to Brexit was always built upon a fear of what those men would do next if they were allowed to get away with, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff they said wasn't true, uh, either through deliberate deception or through simply not understanding things. And my concern has always, my desire for a second referendum was always built upon a fear of what happens if cheats prosper. You know, we teach our children that cheats never prosper. I never foresaw that those men would end up in charge of our response to a global pandemic. So I can't claim any any sort of vindication. But we now have the highest death rate in the world by, um, by most measures, certainly of countries with a population of over 20 million. And so the fear of what would happen if those men were left in charge for the next crisis, after overseeing Brexit, that that what I've learned is that they'll still forgive him. With 104,000 people dead, they'll still wave their little flags. And, and that probably, much more than with anything to do with policy or ideology, that's where the similarity to Trump is 
is starkest is 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 the most frightening so that's what i've learned it's not a very happy lesson but but i've, was, I've been staggered by that a few happy lessons to be learned from the last uh, year unfortunately we'll talk we'll talk about the pandemic and, and brexit mm. johnson first i want to kick off with something we have a unifying bet noir um, andrew andrew neil i want to say only one only one there's, there's a few others <laughs> yes um now I'm going to say, just I'm going to choose my words carefully. In fact, I'll just quote what I said from the Guardian about him, and the reason I'm doing that is because that piece was legaled. Um, mm. it, so Andrew Neil uh, was a man. Uh, he's a, everyone would agree a formidable interviewer. Yes, he's, yes. First, like one of the first times I ever went on TV about a decade ago, absolutely shredded me. Didn't do my homework. Oh. Hugely embarrassing. he's done the same to someone like um, the the Breitbart fella, Dellingpole, hasn't he? So it's not. I do think he is quite impartial on screen, uh, at least explicitly. But what's the, what I'm interested in is what's to come. It's not, specific, you know, Andrew Neil. It's about the media landscape of this country, which is already yeah. dominated by very partisan right wing newspapers. Yeah. Now, you know, you know, Andrew Neil himself, editor of the Sunday Times, he hired Britain's foremost mm. Holocaust denier, David Irving. I'm not associating Andrew Neil, I should say very clearly, with the beliefs no. of David Irving, but he did hire him to work on Goebbels' diaries. When he was editor of the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times read, ran articles claiming HIV did not cause AIDS. And yeah. his chair, chair, as he always very clear that we should point out, yes. of The Spectator, a magazine yeah. which churns out articles such as In Defense of the Wehrmacht, uh, in uh, uh, articles praising Greek neo-Nazis, articles mm. saying there's not enough Islamophobia in the yeah. Conservative Party. Uh, I mean, what does this say about our media landscape, that he was the flagship interview of the BBC? But also, what do you think it's going to mean that someone like him, whatever he says about his own political opinions and those of the spectator, in terms of this new media outlet that he's launching? I'm more troubled by... by what he did and the fact that he was allowed to stay at the BBC um, while publishing, while being paid by the Barclay brothers to publish the, 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 the bile that you've just referenced. And the defense is always, we don't, uh, that he doesn't interfere with editorial decisions. I, I, if you want to believe that, I, I, I can't stop you from believing that, but I, I, I mean, who hires and fires the editor seems to me to be a fairly influential position in, in which, Anyone could find themselves. So I, I took that quite personally, which, you know, is always a little bit pathetic because I had to step down from the BBC, rightly, I think, because I, I, I refused to obey impartiality rules on, on Donald Trump's elevation and, and on Brexit. And my comments were confined to Twitter and to my own radio show, so I, on commercial radio. So it seems remarkable to me that if someone was paying me to publish a magazine in which I could um, coincidentally see a reflection of my own opinions while claiming that it had nothing to do with me, I'd have been fine. If I could have just found a friendly billionaire, I could have carried on presenting Newsnight, but it wasn't to be. So I found that problematical. Look, I mean, this is a free market. And if people watch what's just happened in America and conclude what we really need is more newstainment with a very right-wing slant, then I, I, I mean... That there's nothing we can do about it. There'll be some interesting Ofcom-related issues, but of course, there's a strong chance Paul Dacre is going to be in charge of Ofcom. So uh, this is like an anxiety dream, isn't it? When you actually say all this stuff out loud. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know what we're, I, I, I don't think I'd appear on it. I, I tend not to to do the the sort of panel type shows and the discussion shows. But then, increasingly, you wonder that does that leave the the field clear? So. They're gonna they're gonna put out they're gonna try and do a sort of version of of not Fox News I don't think it'll be quite that out there but it will be for people who watch the BBC and have fallen into the trap of thinking that impartiality is left wing because everything else they see is so right wing that they've um they've lost the ability to discern. Let's talk about Brexit. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, I, I came from I come from kind of broadly left Eurosceptic background, but in a kind of, it's not my big issue. But I, I right. campaigned I campaigned for Remain. I believed Remain was the, the lesser of two evils, certainly. And sure. then after the referendum, three years, thought we should make the best of it until after the European elections when I felt, you know, I, I'd lost the argument amongst Labour members and Labour yes. voters. You, you have become, I mean, you were very much, and still are, I think the pin-up, the pin-up, James. 
It's the only time I've ever been described as that. But I, actually, I didn't campaign for Remain because I was still trying to ride the BBC, LBC two horses at the time. So I didn't, until after the referendum, I didn't really punt any particularly strong opinions on the subject. Perhaps wrong. I mean, and, 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 and lots of people went on that journey, not just mm. you were constrained, but people went on a journey, people got angrier about yeah. Brexit as it went on. And, and that's partly what I was going to ask you about, I suppose. Yeah. In that, we've got the hardest possible Brexit now under a right-wing Conservative government. In hindsight, do you think it would have been better if we'd have settled and tried instead everyone to push for a soft Brexit. I know people then say, well, Labour wasn't offering a soft enough Brexit. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been better for people's campaigning energies to be forcing Labour to adopt the soft Brexit people wanted rather than betting the house on Remain and not just losing the house, but losing the kids, the garage and the car? I, 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 I Listen, I understand the question and I understand the reasoning behind it. And and and. I certainly wouldn't want to begin trying to work out what we, who, who is we, who, who we stands for. But, and, and I also said on the wireless that given what the alternative looked possible, could possibly be, I, I, I would, if I'd been a Labour MP, I would have voted for Theresa May's second time around on the deal because by then I thought that if this doesn't go through, then, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get the vote leave cabal moving into Downing Street. And the, the fact that they then enthusiastically voted for something that was even worse than what Theresa May had on the table shows they did, never really cared about what you'd call detail. But no, I don't buy it, mate, because, because of immigration, because, you know, abolishing freedom of movement was the only win. And once freedom of movement was abolished, the only thing they could sell. So, I, listen, I'm bored of saying not every one who voted Brexit is a racist, um, but everyone I've ever met who's racist definitely voted for Brexit. It, that, that was, Theresa May understood that bizarrely. Um, she didn't get a lot right, but she knew that, well, she postponed her own political demise. She postponed her own defenestration by giving them the red meat of abolishing freedom of movement. So it was the Lancaster House speech, I think, where, where they started boasting about it. We will leave the single market and we will leave the customs union. So what would a softer Brexit be? If, if you wanted to retain either of those things, you're back to freedom of movement of people. And the minute you put freedom of movement of people back on the table, the, the, the sort of vampiric ghost of Farage gets reanimated. He's back on every television program under the sun. Every time someone gets caught shoplifting who happens to have been born in Bucharest, the headlines are, are, are all about Romanian criminals. And, and I think, oddly, because as you know, I'm not a massive fan of Jeremy Corbyn, but I think that failure lies before the referendum was even called. I think Ed Miliband's failure to really have a crack, at least, of, of defending the tradition of immigration in this country set the scene for for what followed post 2016. So, so no, I don't. I don't really think there was an escape route available that you would call soft Brexit because it would have had to involve the abolition of the freedom of movement of people, and, and, and that couldn't have been soft. I mean, on that, I think it's really interesting. I remember coming on your show in a different universe on TV back in, before the 2015 general election, I was on to talk about immigration. Yes. Um, and it was really good because it was a platform, your show provided a platform to actually make the case for immigration. And yes. we were two people, whatever our political differences, two of the only commentators who were willing to make the case Isn't for immigration. That Isn't that insane? Two of the only so great Jonathan Portes as well probably deserves to be on that list, but he's written brilliantly today about the three hundred thousand passports that are on offer in Hong Kong now, and and that's the same as two thousand and four. So that accession in two thousand and four, when they completely miscalculated how many people were going to choose to come and work and try to make lives here, and somehow that was turned into this this toxic toxic. It was actually something to be proud of. Contribution to GDP, contribution to the culture, contribution to the economy, contributions to the NHS, and the fact that you can, with a straight face, and and honestly say that I mean maybe not just the two of us. Let's not get carried away, but we could count our fellow travellers on one hand. Certainly, people whose names are known or, or whose names get chanted regularly by racists. There are hardly any of us, and that that that, that is again why. I think that the soft Brexit thing was was never really viable. But, I mean, that's what I find, uh, without reopening the whole Jeremy Corbyn and the referendum campaign. Can if you want. 
<laughs> the most boring conversation on earth. All I'd say is Labour support for Remain stayed static in the referendum campaign. Tory support declined. That's why Brexit yes. happened. Yes. It, yes. I just feel that the reason I found that conversation boring is for the reason I just said, which is there isn't enough accountability to politicians, not just on the Tory side, you'd expect it, but on the Labour side, yeah. including under New Labour, who had the worst, not the worst of all worlds, because I support immigration, but mm. where where you did have an increase in migrants, which I think mm. is a good, has has been a net benefit for the country, yeah. but they didn't make the case for it. And in fact, mm. David Blunkett and the rest used very toxic language. Yeah. And that ultimately... It wasn't the referendum campaign. It's too short a period of time to turn that around. It was years of poison, not just by Tory politicians, but yes. by mainstream Labour people. Yes, I, I, you're more of a student of the Labour movement than I am. But, yeah, you refer back to Blunkett. It's, I mean, it's a bottomless pit, Owen. This is the thing that I, as I get older and I become a lot more mellow, and measured and sympathetic to people that I disagree with. They don't, you can see why you might have thought, well, let's, let's try and address some of their concerns. Let's try and maybe rather than reassuring or trying to convince them that they've got nothing to worry about, let's maybe f flirt with the notion that there are, I mean, the accession thing that I think it was 2004, wasn't it? But that was, that was nuts because they said 30,000 and it ended up being 2 million. I can't remember the figures. And, and that, I think, was why no one ever chose to return to the fray because you'd always get hit over the head with the statistics about what, what Blair and Brown estimated in terms of how many people would come here from the Eastern European states and how many people actually did come here. But again, as you would say and I would say, you'd say, well, so what? I mean, you, you know, what contributions have been made? Let's look at what has actually been done. But as soon as you've got housing shortages factored into the mix, job shortages even, or wage compression, which the Bank of England found had next to nothing to do with immigration, but it doesn't matter. It, 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 that, those were the fights that the Labour Party elected not to have. And it all, when I start talking about this, I, I just get haunted by the ghost of Gillian Duffy because Gordon Brown was when he horribly horribly misjudged because the microphone was still on and he shouldn't have used the word bigot and he never would have used the word bigot in public if he if he hadn't known he was being uh still being recorded but what he meant was here is a woman an outwardly decent woman a traditional labor supporter who believes things that aren't true about immigration and how do you conduct that conversation no one likes to be told they're a mug uh, nobody likes to be told they're gullible. Nobody likes to be told that what they believe isn't true. It makes them feel stupid. It makes them feel vulnerable. And and they never found a way to do that. And the weirdest thing, when you look at what other European countries have done and the problems that they have with nationalism and with racism, it's hardly ever directed at other Europeans, you see. So, you know, France has, has all sorts of problems coping with... Um, uh, with Islam in, gen in, in general, never mind its extremities. And, and other countries have got nationalist movements, separatist movements in Spain. But I think we were unique in really demonising other Europeans, really demonising Romanians in particular, wasn't it, with Farage? And, and that, that, that's the, the glue that binds all of these disparate issues together, it, it, not just immigration as a, as a sort of umbrella term but specific immigration from within the european union so i would deal with complete headbangers who voted to leave the european union because there were too many muslims in tesco we've all seen vox pops of people saying that i, I did enough phone-ins and spoke to enough people to conclude that that's not freakish there's a lot more of that mad uh thinking around but by demonizing and this was farage talking about languages on trains and you remember all of that mm -hmm. Uh, even though his own ex-wife speaks German to his own children. But once they got that into the bloodstream, Labour just didn't have an answer. Still don't, actually, for that matter. We'll talk about Case Starmer, but do you think Remainers, in, uh, Remainers not Remainers, mm. demonised by Brexit, <laughs> do, do you think Remainers... <laughs> I can't believe that never caught on. I can't <laughs> believe they went for Remona instead of Remanians. It was Romania. That was that. I remember that being tossed be around willy nilly. Romania, Remain, spent too much time making existing Remainers more angry about Brexit rather than love bombing lo leavers. 
It's a great question. Who knows? I thought the way to sell the second referendum was would be to enlist Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was on the tape as saying you should have two. Not to enlist him, literally, because he'd run a mile at, at the prospect. But he was right, actually, for once, stop clock territory, when he said you have one referendum to ask the broad question of whether you want to do this thing, and then another referendum when you know what it's going to look like. And, and that seemed to me, you know, every, everyone who's ever walked past a building site knows the old adage about measure twice, cut once. And so that seemed to me to be, oh, I don't know, almost obvious, but that, that sounds patronising. And then, and then you do reach out to people and they're not being honest with themselves or with you. So this is really what, what turned me into something of a, of a, a face was simply asking people why they'd done it and then they'd tell you something and you'd tell them that wasn't true, you see? Mm-hmm. And so to, at risk of returning to the last question, there was a widespread, still is a widespread perception that this body, this block, this this mark, well, this movement, this idea, the European Union, is an enemy of British interests. They're, they're, and and then, you, then you bring in the immigration myths, like there is a horde of people at the gates who wish you ill, and they're only there because we are members of the European Union, and the European Union actually wishes us ill, and that's where you resurrect all the Second World War rhetoric and, and, uh, and language. And I still don't know how you could have won that argument, even if you'd love-bombed them from space, if they thought the European Union was their enemy, they had 30 years of very deliberate and direct demonization, almost all of it deceitful, uh, at the very least disingenuous, and, and it was an almost unleavened diet. So the, the win that would have been built upon persuading them that the European Union wasn't their enemy. And, you know, two World Wars, one World Cup is, is a fairly swift and simplistic response to that, but it's quite effective. So I don't know. I, I, I think, I think, I think I, I wasn't part of the process. I turned up, always did my bit, you know, did the speech from the, from the stage in Parliament Green. I don't know why it fell apart that people's vote campaign and they turned it into a circular firing squad and they all started biting chunks out of each other. I don't know the details. I don't know where the bodies are buried, but if that hadn't happened, I still think there might've been a, um, there might've been a chance. Now I back, I back Jamie Corbyn though. I'm, I had a period of disillusionment notwithstanding, but I, I wrote a book which went into the, his, Very not what he's up against, yeah. but his, his flaws. Yes. Uh, and his faults. But that notwithstanding, they're more than documented. Yes. Do you think if you had a choice, you'd have preferred that to this? And do you think a lot what? of people, a, a Jeremy Corbyn led government now? Yeah. But also based on that, do you think less time could have been spent maybe? Focus because there was a lot of fire focused, obviously, on his leadership. I'm, I'm not saying some of it wasn't clear. Yeah. I, 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 it was too much, and actually, that 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 allowed a kind of you know for Boris Johnson, given most of the media back him, the few non-conservative elements of the media. We probably had diff- we probably had similar experiences here, but from different ends of the same telescope. Because because for me, uh, a lot of the focus was abuse being directed at so-called centrists. Um, you know, the idea that if you found Jeremy Corbyn anything other than messianic in his gifts, then you might as well. I mean, what was the line? Join the Tories, and then lo and behold, millions of people did. I voted Labour uh, at the last election. It seems important to remind people mm-hmm. of that. I voted for Ruth Cadbury, who is my local. MP here, here in um, in West London, and 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 I had no regrets, partly because I, I didn't, I knew, look, it was a rock and a hard place, Owen, and everyone kept pretending it wasn't. So for me, if if you want my overview, I, I wish he'd gone after losing one election to Theresa May, because the reason that that went a lot better than anybody expected was at the time people didn't know enough about him to realise that he wasn't going to be um, a rallying point for for second referendum or indeed for for anti Brexit. Uh, opposition to Brexit. Everyone I know who voted Labour for the first time in 2017, wasn't it? 2017, yeah, 2017. Everyone I know that voted Labour in 2017 did so because they were essentially voting Remain for the second time round. And and then when they realised Jeremy Corbyn was never going to be their 
their champion. They they voted very very differently come come twenty nineteen. So uh, I, 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 I would, who would I rather have in charge now? That for me is the same question as it was back in December of uh, of twenty nineteen. They're both going to be absolutely awful. Uh, and here we are. One of them is, and and the people who support the fellow who didn't win can pretend that he wouldn't have been awful, but he would. He he would have been absolutely think, shockingly bad. Do you think we'd have had over a hundred thousand deaths? The one uh, of the worst death tolls. No, would we have the best vaccine rollout on the planet, or one of the best vaccine rollouts on the planet? I mean, you can do it both ways. I, I the financial support for people. I don't see that that could have been improved upon. Um, I don't think you'd have had that three million hung out to dry. You might have had more support coming through Social Security than coming through a kind of bespoke furlough scheme. Listen, I I, I don't enjoy this. I still take more shit from Jeremy Corbyn's fan club than I do from Nigel Farage's. So it's not not pleasant for me to, to still sustain this belief. But I, I, I thought I just... I thought it was so appallingly bad. And I and I know that really upsets people. And I know why. I've given it a lot of thought. And Jeremy Corbyn was an empty vessel into which everybody poured whatever they wanted to pour. And and that includes really beautiful, idealistic people who desperately want a better world. They thought he was their man. And it also includes, you know, kind of latter-day McCarthyists who thought he was Mao Zedong in a in a in a Pringle jumper, and and because he didn't have much concrete ideology when he came to the fore, people people poured into him whatever it was that they wanted him to become, and they still do. So, so we've got. I well, listen. I I did a little bit of research for this because this is I think sums up where I am. And there's a. I'm, I'm just changing screen. I hope you can still see me. Because yeah, yeah, you're still there. Because David Cogan wrote this book um, about the history of Labour. He went back to to the book that he wrote with his uncle decades previously. Um, And I'm going to get this right because it sums up everything for me. So protest and power, the battle for the Labour Party that David Cogan wrote. He wrote the, the the battle for the Labour Party with his uncle Morris in in 1981, and then he came back a couple of years ago. And this is the line from Landsman, right? Jeremy's got no enemies. There's a bloke called Byron who was running a candidate in Basildon. No Labour MP would go out to Basildon because they didn't have a hope in hell of winning, and Jeremy Corbyn agreed to. So this geezer, who was a sort of trade union and Labour Party liaison organisation character, a Labour councillor in Basildon called Byron Taylor. He suggested to Landsman that Corbyn could be the man. He could be the candidate to kind of take up the, the, the hard left mantle, the Tony Benn um, wing of the party. Byron said Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy's got no enemies. He'll get on the ballot paper. And this is Landsman talking. I thought I've never taken Jeremy even remotely seriously. Byron was not a rabid left winger. He was a trade union bureaucrat who'd been a party bureaucrat under New Labour. And he was saying Jeremy Corbyn would get on the ballot paper. And it just made me think, actually, I mean, he hasn't got enemies. Everyone likes him, even people who thought he was a left left wing loony. And, and, you know, that's what I mean by an empty vessel. He became the candidate into whom everybody could pour whatever they wanted to pour, which is the polar opposite of a Gordon Brown, for example. And for me, at least, that's 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 why fighting the second election was always doomed to, to disaster, especially against a a shark like Johnson. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in Jamie Corbyn because of the things I'm that he I, 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 We should do this off air as well because it, it really upsets me. No, no, I, I, get, that, I get that. I get that. It's, look, many it's, good it's, people put enormous faith in him and still aren't ready to accept that he was the wrong person to put faith in. It's an important discussion to have, but it's just, it becomes a kind of... Yes, you know, it... We could go on about it for ages and I don't want to. I want to, talk, I want to ask you some just some other stuff. Sure. Your time is precious as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I just find that an odd... Though I think there are lots of justified critiques of Jamie Corbyn. Yeah. Wrong, and I've written them. I don't think a lack of ideas or a lack of a belief system is is one of them. I mean, the thing I would say, twofold, he, you know, that kind of sense of an empty vessel, I find an odd critique because often people's critique of him is that he kept to his very dearly held beliefs for four decades and didn't change them. That was generally the argument that was put against him. He did have a clear set of the rich should pay more tax, 
utility should be publicly owned. Students shouldn't pay debt. I mean, those are, you know, red lines for him. You wouldn't cross them ever. It doesn't yeah, matter. They're, what not, they're not policies, are they? They're, 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 they're really, really woolly principles. They're beautiful principles, which I share. But selling that, it's all right. I, but, if you don't like the empty vessel analysis, I, I, could have, I, I could have fallen in behind Jeremy Corbyn if he'd taken the fight to the enemy, the enemy without if he had, I want a Labour leader, and I'm not seeing it now, by the way. I, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I'm in the studios, not just mine, although, you know, I'm still waiting for a response to my request for interview with Jeremy Corbyn that started in 2015. Um, uh, and he pulled out a news night when he found out it was me presenting it. So, you know, the, 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 I've got personal issues there, but let's not get self-indulgent. Well, if he's not going to talk to me, who the flip is he going to talk to, for goodness sake? And that was the problem, is that he kept persuading the people who already liked him that he was a top bloke and a top geezer, and I wanted to see him in the studios calling out the right-wing newspapers. I want to see a Labour leader who takes the fight to the enemy without and, and just forgets until they're in power about the enemy within. And, and but isn't that, wasn't that the problem I suppose he would feel? A lot of people around him would feel they wanted to do that, but their own side wasn't focusing on the enemy without. It was actually no, MPs or, or, centri- or centre-left commentators would spend more time focusing on the Labour leadership than they would would on the Conservatives. And, and the, the other point, I suppose, is because, he, you know, on Brexit, yeah. That was, because people said about Jeremy Corbyn, he was unbending in his ideas, not yeah. that he's an vessel. But on Brexit, the reason he wanted to, whether you agree with him or not... I'm just going to change rooms, because one of my daughters has got an online singing lesson, so don't... don't, oh, don't well, I thought that would be a good musical accompaniment. But <laughs> you might hear it in the background. It's Hamilton, I think. So I'd, I'd love it. I'd love yeah, it. Like, well, I want to sing along with her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wouldn't... What what they were trying to do with Brett, and I don't, I just feel now we're trapped, we're trapped back in 2018, and I don't want to be yeah. trapped back in 2018, although at least we could go out to the pub in 2018, is that on, you know, on the one hand, it did have a very clear set of beliefs, which he, and red lines he would never cross ever. And the reason he became Labour leader was precisely because other Labour politicians didn't have any ideas of their own left. They were intellectually exhausted. And on Brexit, yeah. the reason they were trying to stick to that line wasn't actually because they thought, Lexit or Brexit was great. Actually, that wasn't his passion. Mm. It was more that they thought the only way of keeping together a coalition of Labour, of, of Leave and Labour, sorry, Leave and Remain supporting Labour voters was to take that position. And that was why they did it, because they wanted to defeat the Conservatives. Yeah. And, you know, if he could have explained that clearly, cogently and passionately, that then we might have had a chance. But you know, I don't want to relitigate any more than you do, but I, I, I feel, and I'm always fond of the pithy one-liner. I, I think that to blame the people who explained why Jeremy Corbyn was unelectable for Jeremy Corbyn being unelectable helps nobody. But that that is one of the many crosses that I bear at the moment. There was no earthly way apart from that one little window in 2017 when, for all your perfectly valid observations about trying to hold together a coalition, the chance of winning power came once and it was a vanishingly small moment and it, it was linked to Theresa May and it was linked to um, the, the, the dawning realisations of what Brexit might mean and you could have got the liars in vote leave on the run and if you'd had, you know, it all sounds a little bit king across the water and, and you know, when people would say, who would you put in charge instead? I'm not going to pretend it was easy to come up with somebody you know, and some of the names that you'd mention, if you said Burnham or Cooper or someone like that, then a lot of the Corbyn loyalists would have an absolute fit. But I just didn't think he had a hope in hell of winning an election. And if your true priority is not necessarily to keep the Tories out, although you can have that, that's a fairly valid priority as far as I'm concerned, but to keep this new brand, the Tory party that has no place for Kenneth Clark in it or... or, or David Gork in it, or you know, or Nick Bowles, or Anna Subri, the Tor- that new Tory party, to keep them away from the reins of power, to keep these 
vampires that wrote Britannia Unchained and are now Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, Secretary of State for International Trade and Business Secretary. If you really, and I can't think of a more urgent mission in British politics in my lifetime, to keep those out, the Tufton Street sponsored ghouls who truly think that human beings are like a crop that needs to be harvested and, and, the, and the Jacob Rees-Mogg School of Conservatism, to keep them out, you needed to send Maximus into that circus, and and we sent Jeremy. Well, I think I I, I think there were certainly critiques to make of Jeremy. I'll, I'll just put on the record. I think that was harsh. But look, just on Keir Starmer, let's just talk about Keir Starmer. Harsh on the harsh on the Tories, Owen. Surely not. Harsh on the Tories. I'm always always <laughs> always happy to be as harsh on the Tories as possible. Tough on Tories, tough on the causes of the Tories. They are on the rise. They're they're not just on the rise, they're in the big jobs now. Johnson, look, Johnson had come out as a hippie tomorrow if he thought it would keep him in power for a little bit longer or if it would serve his own personal interests. The rest of them, the people behind him and these secretly funded um, think tanks and, Mm. and educational charities, these vicious lobbyists who are against any expenditure of, of their secret sponsors' money on actually looking after people. They're opposed to share. That, that for me, was the battle. And I, I, don't know that, I, I, I don't know that Jeremy Corbyn was ever going to be able to land a punch on those people. Let's be waiting. Let's be not... Okay, no, let's, one area of... A, let's, let's say, because he was so nice, which I might not agree with, but if that, if that helps people move on, he was too nice to win a knife fight. He didn't have a knife and he needed one. Keir Starmer, how's he doing? <sighs> tough, tough dig. Let, 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 you know, be under no illusions that you are watching a pandemic sweep through the nation. You're looking at tens of thousands of people dying, many of whom clearly avoidably, clearly as a result of Boris Johnson's policy. But he can't be seen, as you know, he can't be seen to want it to fail. And I don't think he's got it right, but you lose some weight in that criticism if you can't say what he should have done differently. I I would have gone in very, very hard on the countries that are doing well. I'd have looked at them. I'd have taken on the, the, oh, we've got different demographics or we've got different this or different that. You look at the countries that have got a track record of dealing with coronaviruses, most obviously with SARS as well. You look at what they've done and and you you emulate it. So the failure on contact tracing, the failure on on border control, are so ironic, isn't it? The the failure on messaging, the ludicrous sort of fiesta-like atmosphere that Boris Johnson sought to create on July the 4th on D-Day, and then again at Christmas, I, I mean, it's not good enough. The, the, you know, the, the, the repetition of mistakes makes the failure of opposition much more egregious than the failure to properly beard the first mistake it's when he comes back and does it again and i I haven't enjoyed pmqs as much as i thought i was going to i thought that the you know the legal training the the the, the qc fleet footedness would be a little bit i'm sounding like a sociopath because i'm about to say the same thing about starmer that i said about corbyn i think he needs sharper teeth i just don't think he he's too civilized i mean there wasn't there was this meme and and it's become a bit old now but occasionally quite funny because Tony Blair said under Jeremy Corbyn that any other le- well, another you know, Labour should be twenty points ahead, and then there was this whole meme: any yeah. other Labour would be twenty points ahead, given the state the country was then in. And now we look at the state the country's in: over a hundred thousand dead, one of the worst death tolls on earth. In mm. fact, now the worst death rate, apart from I believe Slovenia and Belgium. Yes. Um, Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why do you think... Labour are now struggling as badly as they are. I know people will say, well, that's because they're dealing with the Corbyn legacy. But actually, no, they're, back to where, they're back to where the polling was under mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn between June 2017 and, mm-hmm. December, uh, and January 2019, which is, which is level pegging. So why are they, what, do you, what reason do you think there is? I don't think Starmer has inspired people. Uh, it, you know, if we were talking objectively, regardless of the specific detail of the era that we're living in. But I, I also feel that the virus has done two things. There's a Because I don't know about you, I always struggle to fully comprehend Churchill losing in 45. Um, because, you know, regardless of the nuances, we did win the Second World War and Churchill was a crucial part of that. And the idea that an electorate could then turn around and chuck him out still baffles me, or, or not baffles, because I've, I've studied it and I understand why and how it happened, but it, it still intuitively feels unlikely, doesn't it? And I I think, I've got no evidence for this whatsoever, statistically speaking, I think that people, even, even as our casualty count reaches unbelievable levels, I think subconsciously people would feel that to support the opposition or to attack the government in a time of national crisis is somehow wrong. I think it's a form of patriotism in, in the, you know, the positive sense of the word. Almost the my country right or wrong shadow there as well. But I, I think that Starmer is 50% of the problem and that could go up or down by a lot in the, in the coming years. And in the context of the polling right now against the backdrop of the deaths that you've just described and the idiocy of, 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 of policymaking, the U-turns and the, and the failures and the, and the falsehoods, I think if I try to imagine what it would be like to be in the shoes of someone whose vote was swayable, and we always underestimate how small I think that constituency is, I would feel uncomfortable attacking the government while the virus is still rampaging through the population. And oh that's why that's why people, to my mind, unbelievably, that's why this line about Boris doing his best remains so popular. I mean, it's such a stupid position to adopt for two reasons. Number one, if this is his best, well, then we've got a major blinking problem. And and number two, I don't think he is. I mean, how can his best be the worst in the world? So it's a it's it's a really odd line, but it's one I've thought about a lot, and I think it's due to a sort of almost warlike attitude. That's why I mentioned Churchill getting slung out in '45, because one imagines that on VE Day, um, the idea of of Churchill losing an election months hence would have seemed remarkable. But it doesn't now. And I, and I think this, well, look, it's all I've got. That's my theory for today. I mean, on that, I mean, I, I want to ask you just one other thing before I ask you about the book, which is mm. important. Uh, although I got a message from my producer, I was listening to everything saying, Owen, your lip is bleeding. So I'm hugely <laughs> apologise if anyone's been traumatised. I'm not, I'm not a vampire, I promise. Um, I mean, on that, I, I always, the, my theory, if I look back to, you're quite right, Clement Attlee, uh, swept to power in a landslide victory in 1945, mm. despite the fact Winston Churchill was this national hero. Yes. Winston Churchill, by the way, never, ever won the popular vote in this country, ever, in, the, in where any election he stood. He lost in 1950. In 1951, he won, despite the fact Labour won the popular vote. But He'd have won in 42, I think, wouldn't he? Or at least what? in 43. If I don't know. But anyway, so I don't, you're right, he but didn't. I, I think it's because Labour said, now or when we win the war... We've yes. got to win the peace. 
And all the injustices that have been exposed by the war, like the children who have been forced to be evacuated and they turn up with hungry bellies and doorsteps and people see, and the beverage report and the welfare state all came out of those injustices being exposed, were the ones uniquely placed to create a new Britain to solve them. And that's the fear that some of Starmer's own allies fear that vision isn't really there. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, uh, well, it's early doors, but I don't know how much longer you can take that excuse to the bank. You know, polling doesn't really matter because the uh, possibility of an election is so vanishingly small at the moment. Starmerism is not a word you hear very often, is it? And there's, no. there's, there's probably a reason for that. But, you know, he's got legacy problems, whether you, you want to go back to New Labour and Iraq or whether you just want to go back to... Jeremy Corbyn and, and, and the last two elections, he's got legacy problems. And, you know, I, I, I don't know about you. You're probably one of the only people I can ask this question of. I, I think the right-wing media is about 10 times worse than it was 10 years ago. I, I mean, I, I could be wrong because I moved around a lot as a, as a journalist and I even reviewed video games for the Daily Mail under Paul Dacre. But I'm fairly sure that prior to 2010, Maybe I just wasn't noticing. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. But he's also got that problem as well. And that, that for me, explains the red wall more than anything else, is this, this, this co-opting of the word lefty as a pejorative or the word liberal as an insult. And you've seen where it can lead in America. And, and it's taken root here as well. What, 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 I mean, so what was I called? I was called in the mail on Saturday, a left-wing propagandist. And this was based upon a tweet from March of 2020, which... <laughs> I just retweeted an Observer article which had various academics saying that Brexit was going to make it slower for the coronavirus vaccine to get here. So thank God they were wrong. That's all I did. I mean, all I did was tweet without adding a comment. And and then in the mail, I'm a left-wing propagandist. Now, you really are a left-wing propagandist, but I'm not. So quite how they managed to... Uh, do you see what I mean? That That anyone who just thinks we should maybe share a bit more is now portrayed as Mount Tung, and, and that's also a mountain that Starmer's going to have to try to climb. Yeah, I've been, I've, I've been called worse than left-wing propagandists, but sorry, you've been called worse as well. But uh, I think my, <laughs> my weirdest, Fox News once called me oh, a, braying, a braying jackal, which I was quite flattered by, but I Googled it and jackals don't bray, so it was not the only <laughs> come from Fox News. Before I just ask you finally about the book, um, yeah. Rishi Sunak, the reason I want to ask you about Rishi Sunak is this is a book yeah. bearer of mine in general, Rishi Sunak, because lots, I think he gets an easy ride, Rishi Sunak, yeah. and lots of people, and I'm not having this, and I'm putting, this isn't me having a go. And no, I'm, I'm, it's not like you've oozed with admiration towards Rishi Sunak, but you have said admiring things about him in the past. And the reason I find it frustrating Rishi Sunak, not just that he's an arch-Brexiteer, whatever, a lot of the toys were, mm. but actually I think a lot of the national catastrophe that has enveloped this nation has a lot to do with Rishi Sunak. You mentioned support, by the way. I would mm. say woefully inadequate support, like statutory sick pay, one of the worst in the industrialised world. So actually they could yeah. have done way worse, way better with economic... Oh, no, no, you're absolutely right. But I'm talking about the bespoke measures put in place because of the pandemic. Statutory sick pay was a scandal that was already in place. No, I get that. But other countries did do more generous things than Britain. Yeah. But more specifically, Rishi Sunak... You know, eat out to help out is kind of a low-hanging fruit, yeah. I suppose. And that was linked to up to a sixth of COVID clusters over the summer. Who would have thought putting people in confined indoor spaces during a pandemic would cause the virus spread? But the other thing is, for example, and I th- this is one striking example, back in September uh, last year, he invited lockdown sceptics to Downing Street when yeah. apparently Boris Johnson was minded to impose lockdown after Sage on the 21st quarter. Full-on headbangers. He brought in the headbangers, and he won. And actually, that just shows, actually, Rishi Sunak, all the way through, has been pushing things like, actually, on the lockdown denier stage, and it was misguided because it was about prioritising the economy ahead of public health. But actually, as you and I both know, Mm. if you don't deal with your public health crisis, you end up with a worse economic crisis than both. So shouldn't Rishi, isn't it gloves off time to go for Rishi Sunak, the likely successor to Boris Johnson? Yeah, no, listen, I, I uh, we're not going to lock horns on this because I've got two problems, right? I, well, I, I, and, and I never mislead my listeners. Um, but I am conscious of, I, I mean, it can't be an unleavened diet of criticism and negativity. Um, it can on some issues, but 
I, I, I wanted to have a little bit of faith in Matt Hancock. I, I, you know, it's it's a very low bar, but he doesn't actually look like a sociopath, which makes him stick out like a sore thumb in the current cabinet. And when Rishi Sunak moved very quickly, and he did big things, you know, it wasn't wait and see pie, which is Boris Johnson's speciality. That's his, the only dish he can cook is wait and see pie. And as Raphael Baer has brilliantly, brilliantly explained, Johnson just waits until the choice is actually quite easy. So the choice when there are 10 things you could do is really difficult, especially if you're going to try and do the, the, the number one, the best out of 10, the least bad of 10 bad options. That's tough. That's proper leadership. Johnson's absolutely ill-equipped to do that. He waits until it is binary, and then it's relatively easy to know what to do. It's why he wrote two columns the night before he, uh, he, he came out in favour of Brexit. So Sunak seemed to me, in the early days of the furlough scheme, he just hit me with the caveat that I am constantly and consciously looking for reasons to be cheerful, to, to just leaven my otherwise fairly um, robust attacks or criticism, evidence-based criticism of this, this particular government. I thought he'd done some really heavy lifting. I thought he'd done some really hard work and he'd come up with all the stuff that was new, was, was, was thoughtful and original. I presumed quite wrongly that he'd address the failure to look after the, the so-called three million, the forgotten or the excluded. Uh, I thought that he would do that. And if I'm really honest, I think the fact that I hadn't really heard of him before he became chancellor made me wrongly open-minded. Well, not open-minded. It's good to be open-minded, isn't it? I think the fact that I, I... You're right, he is an arch-Brexiter, but he was not a household name, was he, before he became Chancellor of the Exchequer? And I just think that almost desperate desire to avoid the conclusion that they really are, from top to bottom, the worst kind of politicians, the worst kind of, um, not demagogues, but neoliberals, actually, um, or, 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 or rabid free marketers. I wanted to believe that one or two of them were probably okay. And I, and I categorically accept that, that Rishi Sunak has turned out to be just as vampiric as the rest of them. And, and I, I didn't know when I spoke warmly about the furlough, nor did you, that he was inviting in the kind of who's who of of, of lockdown sceptics and, um, well, for my money, the people that have argued against lockdowns or the people that have expressed this ludicrous idea that we should shield the vulnerable and send everybody else back out into the public space, I, I think they've got quite a lot of blood on their hands. And I agree. He's really I agree. I, and, and by the way, I find it absolutely horrifying how they continue to be platformed, despite being wrong at every... Because, I mean, well, but finally, finish on how not to be wrong your book. But, yeah. this, you know, we can all be... We all have political opinions and views yeah. on things. Maybe someone supports public ownership. Maybe someone doesn't. Maybe someone supports yeah. tax rises on the rich. Maybe someone doesn't. Maybe someone backs Jeremy Corbyn. Maybe someone doesn't. These are all yeah. disagreements. There's a difference between that and during a public health emergency saying things which are demonstrably not true, yeah. outside the scientific consensus, which by being platformed, actually puts people's lives at risk and they are still platformed. Yeah. Cancel culture has not come for them. They continue to spew their stuff. Yeah. Are you shocked? I'm not shocked. No, I'm not at all vaguely even remote. I find it – do you know what I find it frustrating? Like when oh. when uh, Sinetra Gupta, for example, appeared on uh, Radio, T Radio 4's Today program, yeah. you would have thought they would have brought up the fact, just as an example, that last March 20, uh, 2020 – she suggested about half the population had already had COVID-19. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and that maybe if you're going to bring her on national radio, questionable anyway, just yeah. bring up bring up that record. And why that failure, you know? Well, I probably, I don't know who conducted the interview, but there'll be people in that office who probably felt exactly the same as you did. Um, uh, uh, but that's, Definitely, yeah. No, yeah. And, and lots of people at the BBC have been frustrated with that. <laughs> A conversation for another day. We're back to where we started because you, you asked me what I'd, learned and I, and I was genuinely shocked that even with 104,000 but it'd be more won't it by the time this goes out mm -hmm. even with you know six-figure deaths compared to comparable kind you look at Japan's death toll uh, I mean it's 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 actually heartbreaking 
and it upsets me. And, and that, I think, is, is the problem because you come back around, and this is actually what a lot of my book is about, although I didn't know the pandemic was going to do what it has subsequently done. When you do this for a living, and lots of people who don't do it for a living suffer from the same problem, you pick a position and you pick it for a variety of reasons. Uh, you think they're sincere. You may even think they're evidence-based, but the closer you analyze the digger you deep the, the the more likely it is you'll discover that actually gosh that i didn't end up at that position for the reasons i thought i had the inability to climb down from it is pathological and 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 until i went into therapy i was a poster boy for the inability to climb down from from a position of wrongness from school right back it i think well it came out during psychotherapy that, that being beaten viciously as a 10-year-old boy at my prep school, um, I had put so much effort into convincing myself and everybody else around me that it hadn't done me any harm and that I was absolutely fine. I used to boast about having a record still at the school for the most beatings in a single term. And and from that tiny acorn of horror grew this, this mighty oak of what I would once have called resilience and stiff upper lipness. And, and that Part of that false personality, that survival personality, was the idea that ever admitting to being wrong was weak. And watching Johnson, who went to a similar school to mine, Cameron coming out and saying, oh, he'll be fine to beat the coronavirus because I've seen him play tennis. And, and I just watched that, just as the idea for the book was taking shape at the beginning of the first lockdown. And I thought, oh, my God, all of the things that made me a twat are the things that Boris Johnson is going to take to the table in fighting against the virus on a personal level, medically, as we saw, and much more worryingly, or rather even more worryingly, on a national level. And and, and here we are, you know, still talking about at Christmas, it being inhuman. Boris battles the experts to save Christmas. It's not a bloody battle. It's a global pandemic. It is not going to throw its hands up in the air and surrender if you manage to convince everybody in the upper fifth to join you in bullying it. It's, it's, it's broken my heart, Owen, on, on, on millions of different levels, personally, professionally, politically, because, because we put the worst possible people. We haven't even mentioned Dominic Cummings. There you go. Owen Jones and James O'Brien sit down for an hour and don't mention Dominic Cummings. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't had to. We haven't needed to. We no. put the worst possible people in charge. And, and although I think the leadership and the kind of school I went to is is part of, of what's happened, that stubbornness, that inability to admit to being wrong, that refusal ever to climb down, that perception of admitting a mistake as being as being weakness, that, that is not confined to people who went to public school. That runs through, I think partly because of class, actually, but it runs through British society like Blackpool through a stick of rock. And it's a it's an almost uniquely masculine trait as well which is why when the history books come to be written, the countries that have done best will probably be found to have been disproportionately led by women. And, and the worst kind of toxic masculinity is, is Boris Johnson's um, kind of modus operandi. And, and that I, genu I, I genuinely think is the deaths now. It's not one of those things where you can say, I hope I'm wrong. We have seen tens of thousands of people die who wouldn't have died if we'd had stronger leadership, but more clarity and stronger leadership from the start. I mean, just very finally on your book, How Not To Be Wrong. Um, I mean, I was going to say everyone should read, but I think everyone's, most people have bought it now. Um, Sorry, there's is, still a few copies knocking around. I'm sure that people will be able to get older. <laughs> I'm sure they will at all good bookshops. Yeah. But, you know, you you know, because you change your mind, you write about corporal punishment mm. and discriminate stop and so on. Mm. I mean, do you think it's interesting, though, because you either get accused of being, in, you know, if you have a platform and you have opinions, of being, yes. um, I mean, when I mean you, I mean, of being a dogmatist or being a flip-flopper so for example i'll be called a flip-flopper because on brexit not an issue that i've ever been passionate about you're a skeptic right. on general and thought remain was better than uh leave but basically right. treated right. it as two mates right. at the end right. of seven out of ten isn't that the line yeah seven right, seven and a half out of ten i think it was uh <laughs> it, it, for me it was like two guy two mates at the end of a party who'd had too much to drink who were Fair having enough. a massive argument i was like i don't get how this argument ends i just want it to end but it became yeah. you know but like 
But it was for me, it's this sense of, you know, when circumstances change, you have to adapt. Like if you get yes. an umbrella out when it starts raining, yes. you haven't flip-flops, you've adapted to new yes. circumstances. Yes. yes, yes. Yes, well, that's it, isn't it? I, 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 don't, I, I mean, that, that's it. That's the perception of, of, of admitting to being wrong as being weakness. You call it flip-flopping. It's just a euphemism, isn't it, for, for, for calling it weakness. I, I, I think if you do it every week, yeah, well, I'll tell you what struck me quite early on after the book coming out, where I think the first line is, "If there's no point having a mind if you never change it. And I did, when, when Johnson hit about U-turn number eight in, in as many months, I found myself thinking that, well, yeah, I mean, he's not changing his mind because the facts have changed. He's changing his mind because he literally can't get away with it anymore. It, 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 it's not a, a kind of... A, an open and honest acceptance that, you know, Marcus Rashford is the reason for at least two of this government's U-turns. That's got nothing to do. I bet they hate it in private. They're not in private going, oh, well, thank God we saw the light on that and did the right thing in the end. Better late than never, lads. High five, Rishi. They're sitting in private going, that bloody Marcus Rashford made us look like a right bunch of bastards. So that's not, that. that's the answer to your question, is that the the, the wisdom or the power of changing your mind is all about the reasons why you've done it. And so if you can explain to me why you change your mind about Brexit or why you change your mind about Jeremy Corbyn, then I am intelligent enough to come with you on that journey and and either respect or not respect your reasons at the end of that journey. And for the record, I completely respect yours. But the but but for me, differently from you, particularly on on Brexit, which obviously became something of a a, a thing for me is I was motivated, and this is what your people at Andrew Neil's Spectator would call virtue signalling. I, I was motivated by the people I speak to every single day, Owen, and, and it's important to remember that. I have this astonishing privilege of speaking every single day to people who may love me or hate me, trust me or, or, or not trust me, but I get to speak to them every single day. And it came, it became crystal clear to me within moments of that referendum result landing that people who thought they had voted to improve their own lives had in fact voted to damage them. And now you're seeing the effort being put into claiming that, oh, I knew there would be economic harm, or I knew that this was going to happen, or I knew that that was going to happen. And, you know, the fishermen have been the first industry, arguably, to be shafted. The farmers won't be far behind them. Everything that Project Fair said is going to come true but i'm fine i i'm as insulated from the impacts of that for the same reasons that i was to go back to the beginning insulated from the privations of lockdown i i'm 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 on on the lucky end of that that graph the people who aren't are the people who most of the research shows were more likely to vote for it and they're more likely to get hurt and that takes us back doesn't it to the um to the classic line that i'm sure we both have tattooed on our souls about the, the the real problem being wealth persuading labor to use its political freedom to keep wealth in power and 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 here we are and that's why i mean the day that we record this the dust is just settling on that ludicrous um uh, european commission uh, gaff on friday night with the threat to trigger article 16 clearly not understanding really what that meant a, a grasp of the good friday arranged good friday agreements relationship with the customs union that was almost as poor as the entire conservative parties so the the relish and the glee with which this has been seized upon and you know i obviously have people queuing up to say ha 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 you were wrong. The European Commission isn't perfect and infallible after all. And so the immediate response is, well, no one ever said it was. It's, it's profoundly flawed, but it's the best available option for a country like ours in the context of 21st century trade. But actually, so it's now Monday evening, and that happened on Friday evening. As the dust has settled, and oddly, it was reading Trevor Kavanagh's column in The Sun today, which, I, mean, I don't know if you read it, it was incredible. It was it was like the, the craziest texts. The texts I get in the LBC studio that are too crazy to read out was a full page in the sun today. Uh, you know, von der Leyen is a mafia leader and Merkel is a puppet master and Macron is grotesque. I mean, it was horrible, but also hilarious to read. 
And what you suddenly realise, and I haven't said this on the radio yet, and I, I, I may wait a bit because I don't like poking tigers just gratuitously. But what is so clear is that all of these people have actually smelt the coffee. That they're not yet yet ready to say, well, hang on a minute. I didn't think the fishermen were going to get shafted. I didn't think that trucks were going to actually be leaving the UK empty. I didn't think that European businesses were simply going to shut up shop and wait and see what happens before they start trading with us again. I didn't think that the economy, according to Moody's from, from the 25th of January, I didn't think the economy was really going to get hit as hard as all those experts and project fear people said it was going to get hit. I think the violence of the reaction to what the European Commission did on Friday night is best understood as that that last desperate gasp, that last clinging to the carcass of the idea that Brexit is a good idea. And um, and it took me a while. It took me all, all day, actually, today to work that out because I just couldn't. Why are they being so mad and so vicious and so triumphalist? You know, the mail on Saturday, as I said, calling me a left-wing propagandist for a tweet I sent in March, which didn't even contain any comment. It's because this is their, their one big raft of relevance. So they can say, ha-ha, the European Bre- Brexit isn't stupid after all because Ursula von der Leyen nearly did something silly on a Friday night in January. And and by March, I think we'll be back to reality again. And that, that, that brain fart that the commission suffered from on Friday night will be, will be long forgotten. Of course, in continental Europe, it, it already is. And indeed in Ireland, I spoke to Tony Connolly today from RTE and, and already the, the, the size of the story in our right-wing media and the size of the story everywhere else is it's, um, well, it's David and Goliath. James, what an absolute honour. You've been a gent oh, sharing sure. your your thoughts. Even when I disagree with you, I always find you fascinating to to listen to. And that's what Thank this is you. all about, having, yeah. nice little, having nice little chats with people. But we disagree on quite a lot, you see. And, and, and yet, again, in this ludicrous crucible that we've allowed to be built around us, we're, we're, we're both prominent lefties. And, and I still get texts saying, well, at least at least your, your, love, your lover, Jeremy Corbyn, isn't prime minister. And I, I think if only everyone on the right that hates me and everyone on the left that hates me, if they could just argue among themselves about whether I'm left-wing, right-wing, or, or, or the mother of all centrist dads, my life would be a lot more peaceful. I mean, I get called a Blairite sometimes. There you go. It's just mad, so, right? <laughs> but at least yeah. I, I think we can both agree our support for Donald Trump is non-negotiable. And we're I mean, both- ardent, ardent Trumpian. Uh, that's what I am. I just... Uh, <laughs> Not, I just think it was extreme enough. That was my one little quibble. That's where he went wrong. That's where he went wrong. But uh, seriously, Joe, it's, uh, it was a big honour. Thank you for, for taking a bit of time with us. Really appreciate right. it. Cheers, Owen. Thank you, mate. Thank you for listening, everyone. Now, if you want us to do more and more of these and documentaries and discussions, you name it, please support us either with a supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Please give five stars if you are willing and able to on iTunes. Subscribe and spread the word. Loads and loads more to come. Speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.